You're listening to Cleanish Reads, Episode 37, Book Club Week, The Coffeehouse Investor by Bill Schultheis. Welcome to Cleanish Reads. I'm your host, Amy Hall. You can trust me to sift out the garbage and recommend the best books that you can be excited to read on your own and with your family. Thanks for joining me on this journey to learn and grow through uplifting reads. All right, my special guest today is my brother Mitch, who is currently finishing medical training in Wisconsin. And besides my husband Clay, Mitch is the person I know who is most interested in financial literacy and planning. And he's very knowledgeable about investing and the stock market and saving for the future. That being said, he's not a professional financial advisor, so it's kind of more of a hobby and personal interest for him, but he loves to share with friends and family his wisdom to help us all be more financially literate. So welcome to the podcast, Mitch. Hey, thanks for having me. And that's quite the introduction. That's a lot to live up to. But I like the (laughs) disclaimer as well. I'm not a professional. I just do this for fun. (laughs) Well, maybe later on we'll talk about if someone needs a professional or not, but... I think it's cool that it's just an interest, and as this book showed us, you maybe don't need a professional to help. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. I don't need to ask you if you liked this book, The Coffeehouse Investor, because you are the person who actually recommended this book to me. So the real question here is, did I like the book? And the answer is yes, I mostly did. I liked that it was short. I agreed with the author's ideas pretty much. I'm wondering, is it bad if I still thought it was a little too long? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's bad. No, I think most financial books, even with me, I love reading about finances. By the end of it, you're kind of tired of it. You're like, okay, I've heard this before. Uh, I just want to be done with the book kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, I totally get that. But I'm so glad you liked it because that's why I told you to read it. Because I think this book is perfect for people who aren't really into finances, but know they need to be into finances a little bit. Because I thought it was engaging. I thought it was simple. It taught mostly principles instead of nitty gritty details. So I'm really glad you liked it. Yeah, if it had too many nitty gritty things, I think it would have lost me. Sometimes I'm like, well, that's a good principle, but what am I supposed to do with that? And maybe we'll talk about that more later. But um typically nonfiction self-help type books, I get bored. And I always think that I would like the summary better than the actual thing. But this one, it was pretty short to begin with. And I think the repetition, like sometimes I felt like he was a little repetitive, but it did help things stick in my head better. Like each chapter, I really felt like I got it, which is a good thing. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I think that's the whole point of the book. It's to kind of whet your appetite and get you interested and teach you a few principles that then as you learn more about finances, you can remember, oh yeah, I remember reading about that in this book and that makes sense to me. As opposed to just getting thrown into financial topics and you have no idea what's going on. And then it just raises your anxiety. (laughs) So I thought this book did a really good job at just teaching the basics. Yes, and anxiety is something we don't need around Um, investments. We have plenty of other things to be anxious about in life. We don't need to be super anxious about that. So what made you interested in finance in the first place? Because as I said, you're kind of going towards the medical profession. So why are you interested in finance? Yeah, that's a great question. So initially, it started out as a coping mechanism. So whenever COVID hit, 
a lot of my clinical rotations kind of got canceled slash switched to virtual. And so I had a lot of extra free time on my hands. And it was right around the time where the stock market was crashing. And so people were kind of panicked about it. And I was just getting very stressed out about all my debt, as I'm sure you know, medical education and dental education and education in general is just very stressful and very debt ridden. And so I looked at all that debt and I was so anxious about it. And so my coping mechanism that I usually do in these situations is I just have to learn more about it and then I'm less stressed. And so I started reading uh, quite a few financial blogs. One of them is The White Coat Investor. I started reading some books and I just started learning more about the topic, um, mostly to try to get a financial plan of how to pay off my debt. But then that kind of snowballed into investing and budgeting and just all kinds of topics. Uh, And uh, as a success story, I feel much less anxious now about my debt. I feel like I have a good plan and I kind of understand how things go. And so it's made me a lot more um, hopeful for the future and much less anxious about what's going to happen. Yeah, that's awesome. Very good. Very good reason to be interested in finance. Hobbies that can help ease your anxiety. That's always a good thing. I like that. All right. So this might be clear to most people, but for us investing beginners, why should I even take a risk in stocks and bonds? Why can't I just give my money to the bank and they keep it safe for me until I have enough money? Yeah, so I think that's a perfect first question. And for me, um, I've actually thought a lot about this myself. And how I think about it is you don't want to work forever. And so you need enough money to retire. So then you can stop working and have enough money after that. And then after that, it kind of comes down to basic middle school math. So if you Google a compound interest calculator uh, and then you just type in just a few numbers, you can get a good sense of it. So if you saved, let's just say like $500 a month, for 26 years. So that'd be me. I'm going to retire hopefully at 65. I'm 29 right now. So that'll put me at $222,000 exactly. Um, On the other hand, if you invested that $500 a month starting for uh, now and for 26 years in the S&P 500, which is a basic investing index, then you'd have just over a million dollars. So that's quite the spread. You know, you're almost three quarters of a million dollars ahead of money that you put in. So to me, when I learned that, I was like, oh, okay. So investing is just a tool to get more money that you can retire with. And then you can stop working and just live off that money that you've made. So it's making your money work for you is another way people say it. Um, Because that's what the banks, that's what they do. You know, a savings account, they would love for you to just give them all your money because then they'll make like 6% or whatever on it. And they'll make that million dollars while you're sitting there with only 222,000. Right, because the banks do invest that money in other things that you're basically loaning them. And then I noticed that accounts don't really give very much interest anymore. <laughs> like a yeah. savings account <laughs> doesn't give you much back. So so true, so true. So yeah, the numbers don't lie. If you think that hiding it in your mattress or a bank savings account is going to help, it, the reality is you're basically just losing money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's a caveat to that. Some people would say invest everything you own, but I think it's worthwhile to have a savings account. I have a savings account uh, and I think it's worthwhile to keep like three to six months of your um, expenses in there just as a hedge against catastrophe. Because even if you have disability insurance, it usually takes about three months to kick in anyway. So you need some kind of a buffer if something happens, you need some money aside. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. It is good to have some cash on hand or something you can get to quickly. Um, but yeah, for sure. Okay, let's jump right into what the author is telling us in this book. So he had three main principles of investing. So his first one was, he kind of had it in two separate ways of putting it. Don't put all your eggs in one basket or asset allocation, meaning choosing the best combinations of stocks, bonds, and cash to give you the greatest chance of achieving your financial goals with the least amount of risk. And then he kind of gave a chart an assets allocation model based on your age and how conservative or aggressive you want to be. And I liked this basic idea that when it comes to investing money for retirement, there is a better way to split up your investments to give you the least amount of risk. And I liked the chart because what it basically told me was that until the age of 45, most people should have the majority of their savings in stocks with a little bit in bonds and cash if they're more conservative and as they age less money will go into stocks and more into bonds as the bonds are slightly less volatile in the shorter term is that right is that basically what he was trying to tell me there yeah exactly and a lot of it's just kind of based on risk so stocks over time and we'll talk about this probably in the future but stocks over time on average are going to always go up but there's always a risk that there can be like as long as 10 year periods where they don't go up or they're actually down pretty far. And in those periods, bonds are much more stable. So especially as you approach retirement and you might need that money, it's better to keep a little bit in bonds because they're much less volatile is the word that's thrown around a lot. So they'll still go up and down, but not nearly as much as stocks. So if you just throw out a number like a million dollars, a stock yeah, it can go down by 50% in one day and a huge crash. Then you only have uh, $500,000, so you lose a ton. Whereas a bond will go down by much less, so you'll still have a little bit more. And part of it's to help you sleep at night because <laughs> it can yeah. be you know, very uh, stressful to see your money go away like that. But part of it too is just as you approach retirement, you want a little less risk in your portfolio because you might need that money. Yeah, you're closer to needing it. One of my favorite things, which you kind of just talked about, that I learned through reading this book, there was a graph in the book and it showed that in the short term, the stock market ups and downs look really gigantic and scary, you know, like big crashes and then big climbs. But when you take a longer perspective, like say 80 years, those dips are tiny blips on an unstoppable upward climb. And Clay also, my husband Clay also showed me the same thing. He has an app on his phone where he likes to see what the stock market is doing that day. And if you take like a real time graph of the stock market, like a whole index fund over several years, he'll scroll out. So it's over several years and it is just this invariable climb up. It always goes up. So I did not know that before. So it seems like the key is to put your money in there and leave it for a long time. Now, I'm not a big financial guru and I do not use my free time. I'm reading books and doing this instead of reading <laughs> financial articles like you and Clay. But this seems pretty straightforward that everyone should know that the stock market is always going to go up eventually. So put your money in there and leave it. Are there people who disagree with this, who think that the stock market does not go up? Like, is there a case for that? 
No, not really. Pretty much everything I've ever read always says the stock market always goes up. And so you always just kind of trust that it will. Um, and I guess there are always naysayers. Like in the Great Depression, I'm sure there were people talking about how it'll never go up again. But sure enough, if you look at the graph after the Great Depression, it just kept going upward and upward. So I think there's always, you know, people who will say this and that. But at the end of the day, it's pretty much always going to go up. And if it doesn't, I think we have bigger problems on our hands because <laughs> it probably means that the world economy has pretty much ended. So as long as there is an economy in the world, things are going to keep going up, which is great. And you brought up a really good point that you don't have free time to read all this stuff. And so that's one of the main points of the book is that he's giving us a, an ideology that we can just kind of set it and forget it. You don't have to think about it. You can go about your daily life and have confidence that your money's always going to go up eventually. There might be a period of time when it goes down a bunch, but overall it's going to keep getting more and more and you don't even have to worry about it. You just kind of trust that it's going to do what it's always done for the past 200 years. Yeah, that gives me a lot of confidence, I guess, that I don't have to worry if on the news they're like, and the Dow Jones was down so many points. I don't have to stress about those because they seem big in the short term, but in the long term, it will keep going up. So I like that. I like having confidence that that's going to work out. Yeah, and I like the analogy he used in the book. I think one of the things he brought up is how he liked to do other things. You know, he liked to go golfing with his buddies or he liked to just go to a coffee house and read the paper. And he liked being able to do that and not stress out about finances or his investing. He could just go and kind of enjoy himself. And so I think you bring up that really good point that I think a lot of people relate to. They just don't want to worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> the Dow Jones is crashing. It doesn't matter. Like my investments will be okay eventually. Because, you know, if you follow the principles in this book, you're going to be just fine. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so that brings us to our his second point, which was, there's no such thing as a free lunch or approximate the stock market average. So meaning, we don't try to beat the market with individual stocks. We invest in large index funds that will keep our earnings up with this continual growth of the stock market as a whole. So we just learned it eventually always goes up. So we want to match that if we can. And this part made so much sense to me. And the beauty of it is it's so easy. When I was younger, I remember visiting a friend's house where the dad had some type of financial show always on in the background with the ticker tape of rises and falls going along the bottom and the people in the show are smart looking people in fancy suits that are debating the values of certain companies and talking about what was up and coming and what was heading downhill and scenes from the floor of the trading room in Wall Street that seemed like a crazy fight that <laughs> the really yeah. savvy and strong people are the only ones who can figure this out. So I was always sure that there was no way I could earn money with the stock market because I did not want to spend my time learning about it. But it turns out we don't have to because index funds will beat everything else. So why do so many people not do this? Why are there still shows on television and magazines and in careers of people trying to help us pick individual stocks? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, well, first of all, I kind of related to that at first because it's exciting and it's kind of a thrill. And I think that's one of the answers to the question is that people really get into the psychology of money. And you always feel like you're going to miss out, like, oh, you got to buy this stock because this company is going to be amazing one day. And they give you an example of like Apple, 
who, you know, surged. And if you had bought it 30 years ago, you'd be a millionaire now, even if you only put $100 in. Which so sounds they, amazing. I'm not going to lie. That does sound yeah. cool. <laughs> and it is amazing. And so it's hard not to hear that and be like, oh, I should be a part of this right now. And so that's why I think people are still really into single stocks and buying and selling and things like that. And, um, and I think, you know, marketing and stuff is really good at that. They get you to focus on that risk and that reward. But in reality, like you said, the index funds, they're boring, so they're hard to sell. And I think just for lack of education, people just don't know about them. And I didn't know about them either. So not to go on a too long-winded of a story about myself, but when I first started learning about finances, I was into those single stocks. So I bought Boeing because Boeing was like crashing. So I bought a stock of Boeing and you should have seen me because like every two hours I was checking Boeing stock for like two weeks <laughs> and it was taking over my life. And finally I was like, I got to sell. And so I made like 20 bucks on it, which was great. But I thought like, that is so not worth it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I could be spending my time on way better things. I have a test coming up, you know, that kind of thing. And so then I learned about index funds and the, the idea behind it's really kind of boring, but like really simple and actually really nice to invest in. It's basically just an index or just a list of all the stocks and how much each is valued. And it kind of just values each stock based on what it, uh, or it takes the value that the market sets and just divvies up how much of each stock you're going to buy based on the value of the stock. So basically the bigger a company is, the more you're going to own of it, which is great for investing because the bigger companies are generally a little bit less risky. But then the other great thing about an index is that you're invested in pretty much every company, depending on which index you're in. And let's just use an example because I might be getting too much into the nitty gritty, but the S&P 500 is essentially an index of the U.S. top 500 stocks, top 500 companies in the U.S. And ever since the 1920s, like clockwork, it gains about 10% per year. And wow. like you said, it goes up and down. But if you just invest in that, you're going to be fine. And that's in contrast to other things, like if you invest in single stocks, there have been so many studies about this that even professionals who look at this stuff every second of every day, they're only able to beat the market consistently about 20% of the time. In other words, 80% of those people cannot beat the stock market average, the S&P 500. You just can't do it. And so when you look at that study, it's like, oh, okay, well, then it makes, it's a no-brainer. I'll just always invest in the S&P 500. Now, there is a bit of a risk reward. So the S&P 500 is only 10%, which to me is great to other people that might not be enough. And that's why they get, you know, bought into these single stocks or these people who are selling companies here and there. Yeah. But if you just invest in the S&P 500 index, you're probably going to make 10% on average for the rest of your life. And so to me, that's just very comforting because then it takes away the risk. I don't have to look at Boeing's stock price every five minutes. I can just <laughs> put it in that and then just not worry about it. And it's going to be just fine. Yes, yes, that's a great point. So he didn't talk about it a whole lot in the book, but what about stocks that pay dividends? Like, are those typically, he talks about index funds that pay dividends. I don't know if the S&P does or not, but aren't those kind of like a free lunch? Because he says there's no such thing as a free lunch. But how I understand it, dividend is money that the fund is paying you at a certain point. So what about yeah. those? Yeah, that's a really good question too. Um, so to define the term free lunch, I think of it as like a reward that has no risk. And if you're invested in a stock, you already have a little bit of risk. So there, there really is no such thing as a free lunch. So I think he's just trying to say 
um, you know, every investment you do is going to have a little bit of risk. And so don't listen to those people who are like, oh, this is a no brainer. You have to invest in this because it's no risk at all because everything's going to have a little bit of risk. And what a dividend is, is just the company will pay money to whoever holds the stock and they'll pay, you know, whatever percentage of the money to the investor. So like a 1% dividend would be 1% of whatever the price of the stock you own, you're going to get money back. So if you own $100 in stock, you'll get about $1 per year. And then you can choose to do whatever you want with that money. You can put it back in, et cetera. And some people get super into dividends. That, that's all they focus on. And I think that's where they get into trouble because every stock um, will have a varying level of, of dividend. So some companies might give no dividend. Some companies might give, you know, 8%. Whenever you start looking at that number way too much, you know, you're on the wrong track. <laughs> and I've been guilty of that too. If all you look at is dividends, that's when I think you're in trouble. Because I think just realizing that, you know, dividends are just, um, you know, they're great if a company gives it, but it's not the only thing to look at. And then to answer your original question, um, S&P 500, those companies, most of them do give dividends. Some don't. Okay. I haven't looked at the numbers in a while, but I think that dividend, if you average out all of the dividends you get from it, is around like 1% or 2%, which is a little bit, which is great, but it's not like the only thing to look at. Okay, so yeah, you don't need to focus on who is paying the bigger dividend. You're mostly hitting those big whole index funds like the S&P 500, and then if you get a dividend, that's just a little bonus. Exactly, yeah. And That's the cool. important thing to know, too, is that if a company gives a dividend, you usually want to reinvest it. Because some people that focus on dividends a ton, they love to throw out the statistic. Uh, and I actually wrote it down so I wouldn't mess it up. But um, there's a guy, Kevin O'Leary, he's on Shark Tank. He likes to throw out the statistic all the time. He says uh, over the past 40 years, 70 or 80% of the returns are all from dividends and not from the stock price going up. And so he loves to throw out that statistic and get people super focused on dividends. Uh -huh. But I think the moral of the story that he's not saying is that's only if you reinvest the dividends. So if you keep reinvesting, okay. then your dividend will grow because it's just a compound interest. So as long as you're reinvesting your dividends, I think you're totally fine. But I just wouldn't focus on them too much. I would just get an index. Okay, nice. All right. I loved the quote. It was page 68 of my copy of the book. And it said, I trust an expert to clean my teeth do surgery on me and take care of my car, but we don't need a professional to pick stocks for us. And this totally seemed counterintuitive to me at the beginning because I'm like, well, I don't know anything about stocks, so I probably do need a professional until I learned about index funds and then the fees that will kill us from hiring someone to do this for us. So I guess if I could clean my own teeth better than a dentist, I wouldn't ever go pay a bunch of money for them to clean my teeth so I could pay them. I would just do it myself. So do you think there's ever a time when it is wise to hire a, prof a financial professional? Yeah, I think there definitely are times. Um, and there's kind of a lot that goes into this, but just because you hire a financial professional doesn't mean that you're going to be invested in stocks that are more risky than if you don't, or you're going to come out ahead of someone who doesn't. I think the times where you need a financial advisor are if you have no idea what to do, um, if you know you can't like trust yourself to buy the index funds. I know people who get so anxious about handling their own investments, they just hire someone else to do it for them. And that can be helpful because if you panic whenever the stocks go down and sell it all, 
then you're not keeping all those stocks that are eventually going to go up. And that's actually detrimental in the long term. So if you do that, then it's more than, you know, it's very worthwhile to have a financial professional because then they're going to know like, okay, we're not going to sell. We're just going to hang on. <laughs> the market will correct itself. It's going to go back up eventually. Yeah. I think if you, yeah. And I think especially at the beginning of your financial career, I think it's totally reasonable to get a financial advisor until you can kind of learn on your own. And do some advisors do. have like higher fees than others? Like, is that something you should ask about? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So some financial advisors, they try to sell you things and they get a commission from them. And anytime someone gets a commission, I get a little bit anxious and worried that maybe they're not doing what's in my best interest. But the best financial advisors are the fee only financial advisors, because then you just pay them a flat rate and then they don't get any commissions if you know, whatever they're selling you, whether it's life insurance or a stock market allocation or things like that. Um, those are probably the best ones. And then every single investing brokerage like Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, they all have uh, advisory services that you can pay. And it's usually like 1% ish, you know, one to 2%. And then they'll just manage your investments for you. Okay. And it kind of depends. I think you can maybe do that a little bit and then see what they invest in. <laughs> and kind of a funny story. I know a guy who had an investment advisor who was managing the investments and he'd get a printout every week or every month, you know, about what was invested in and what the fees were. And the fees were pretty high. It was like two or 3%. Um, and then, so basically what he did, he fired the financial advisor and then looked what he invested in and just invested in the same exact things. Cause he was invested in index funds. <laughs> and so he basically just took it and did whatever the financial advisor already did. <laughs> and I thought that was genius because like he got a plan from the financial advisor and then just started doing it on his own and fired the financial advisor and saved all the fee money. And so I think that's a good option, too, if you're starting out. But uh, I, I don't want people to think you can't use one because I think they can be really good. But you definitely want to be careful because some of them can have a ton of fees. And then some of it you can just do yourself with a little bit yeah. of education. So I know several people who I could see them reading this book and thinking, this is all great and fine, but I have no idea how to even get started. So if someone only had their money like in a savings account at a bank and they had never owned a stock before, how hard would it be for them to get started? Like how do they actually go about getting these index funds? Yeah, that's a good question. I, it's actually a lot easier than you think. So you can log on to any of the brokerage accounts I don't get any money from saying this. I usually use Vanguard, but I know Fidelity is really good. Schwab can be really good too. And you basically just go to their website and you want to open an online brokerage account. And then you can start investing through that. So then you set up the account, you'll set up your bank account with it so you can put money into it. And then once that account's open, then you just start investing in index funds. So that if you just look at whatever total stock market index funds or S&P 500, index funds, then you just put the money in there and then you pretty much just set it and forget it. And then you look at it to adjust it every now and then. Um, but that's really all it takes. And then a lot of people probably already have more investments than they realize because most employers offer some kind of investing plan through a 401k. And so that's another really good one that I'd actually prioritize other than doing like a brokerage account outside of retirement, because then you get tax benefits, which is great too. Oh, yeah, so, that's a good point. I didn't think about yeah. that. And that doesn't sound scary at all. I think that 
you know, I said that my husband enjoys this as a hobby, and so he kind of takes care of that, but he really wanted me to learn more about it. So this book was awesome for me, but I was scared, like, what do, how do I get these stocks, and how often do I have to check it? But like you said, it actually is pretty straightforward. You just get your account, and you can, it shows you exactly what you have, and you just, however much money you want to put into an index fund, you just pick it and go for it. And I'm, I'm wondering... Um, I noticed in the book, I feel like a lot of the ones he listed in the appendix, maybe they were a little outdated. I'm not really sure. But is it fairly easy to see, like on Vanguard or Fidelity, what the big index funds are? I'm guessing it is. Yeah, it's usually pretty easy. And most of these firms are pretty helpful, too, because they want to help you. That's their job. So if you call them and ask them, what is a total stock market index fund, then they'll just direct you right to it. But the only confusing thing that actually I got confused about when I first started is that each firm now has their own index funds that they use. And that was very confusing to me. Like there's a Fidelity, S&P 500, a Vanguard, a Schwab. So that was confusing. I was like, how are these all different? I thought they were investing in the same things. And they pretty much are. They're all required to follow the index. So it doesn't really matter which one you choose. They're all going to be just fine. I would just choose whichever one you're not going to get extra fees from. Because as I'm sure you're, you know, it makes sense. Vanguard doesn't want you to invest in Schwab's. They want you to invest in theirs. Because even though the fees are so tiny, they still make a little bit of money off of it. Uh And so that's the only confusing thing. But as long as you just invest in an index fund with really low fees, then you'll be just fine. Nice. That's good. It's good to know that the company wants to help you too. That they're not going to try to sell you... um, you know, get you to sign up with one of their financial investors and give them a bunch of fees. They actually are there mostly for people that want to do it themselves, right? Yeah, well, as a caveat to that, they actually do want to sell you stuff because they want to make money. So they'll try to get you to (laughs) sign up for, (laughs) they'll be like, hey, sign up for our advisory service. But if you say, no, 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 I just want to invest in this index fund with the S&P 500, which one do you guys have? Then they'll tell you. Okay. (laughs) And they they want you to be satisfied with their service, but they still want to make money. So they're going to try to sell you like their advisory services, which is fine. You know, if you want to do it for a little bit and then switch to do it yourself, that'd be okay too. Yeah, that's good advice. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, they're all trying to sell you stuff. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I get it. It is a company. I get that. All right. So, his third thing was save for a rainy day or just saving, meaning you need to know how much money you need to set aside each month to reach your financial goal and start saving for it. And I thought this one was probably the most obvious, but maybe also the hardest to actually do. It's not easy to look at the cold, hard numbers, especially if you aren't in the habit of budgeting, to see how much you will actually need to save to be able to live comfortably in retirement. And I loved the retirement worksheet that has you plugging in a few numbers to show you kind of the ballpark range of what you need to save every month to meet your goals, which is super useful. And also the chart showing how much compounding can help if you invest early enough, which kind of scared me because I'm not 29 like you, Mitch. I'm a little older. <laughs> You're still very but... <laughs> young. Yeah. I'm still young enough. I can still invest. But I love the author's statement that the only thing worse than starting to save later in life is to not start at all. You got to start somewhere. So how can somebody find a balance between living a good life and saving responsibly for the future, because I really think that you should be able to do both. Yeah, exactly. 
I think it's just a matter of sitting down and going through how much money you're getting. And I know it's kind of a trigger word, but just making a little bit of a budget and saying, how much money am I spending on everything? Um, and how much do I really want you know, to be happy? Uh, and I think it's also the realization of, do I want money when I retire or am I just going to rely on the government or social security? which to me gives me anxiety thinking about it because I'm thinking, well, I don't even know if that's going to be around by the time I get to retirement. <laughs> yeah. And so I think it's just a matter of realizing what is your overall goal. And for me, my goal is to have money now and to live comfortably, but also to have money in the future. And then realizing that it doesn't take that much. So I kind of gave the example, if you invest $500 a month from the time you're in your 20s to retirement in a regular index fund, you're going to have about a million dollars by the time you retire. And that's only 500 a month, so that's pretty reasonable for most people. And then other financial experts um, talk about, like, you know, if you just do 10% of your money every month into retirement or investing, if you do 15%, some people even say 20% if you're maybe a little bit older in your 30s or 40s. So I think those ballpark estimates are good. And then once you realize that, it's really not that much. Like, okay, I can, you know, I can sacrifice 10% of the money I make now into a retirement account for the future whenever I eventually retire. Um, so to me, once I do that, it's not as bad. And then what I've done to further distance myself from thinking about money that's going away, I just make it automatic. So every month, I just have it automatically take money out of my paycheck and invest it for retirement and that I don't even have to think about it. And I think that's really good for a lot of people because then you don't have to stress about it. You don't have to worry about it. And you know it's going to do its own thing. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And the reality is having like buying more and more and more things now doesn't necessarily equal a good life. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm getting older, but it's not that I don't spend money because I for sure do. But sometimes I can say, ah, you know what, maybe buying that thing isn't really worth it. It'd be, I'd enjoy better putting that money away for something in the future. Yeah, exactly. So what would you say to someone who is not currently saving very much money at all? They're just living day to day right now thinking I'm 29. I don't need to worry about the future. What would you tell them? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I I guess it depends on the person. (laughs) If it's another medical resident like me, I would just tell them, you know, just hang on. Things will be okay. (laughs) Like, hang (laughs) on to your debt. Like, but you got to start thinking about the future a little bit and save money for a rainy day, save money for the future because your future self will thank you. And I'd probably tell them, like, a little goes a long way. So even if you want to start out by saving $100 a month or $200 a month, I think that'll go a really long way. And maybe once they get comfortable with that, $500 a month, $600 a month, you know, whatever it is. And I think as long as you're doing that, you'll be okay in the end. But yeah, yeah, people who don't do that, yeah, it's just some basic math. Like how much money do you really think, you know, you'll need to retire? And I think once you start thinking about that, then you start to understand why you need to invest a little bit and save for retirement. Yeah. And obviously it's important. He doesn't talk a lot about anything in this book besides investing, but you know, there are other facets to financial well-being. Like if someone has a bunch of student loan debt, obviously that's important to pay off first instead of throwing all that money in the stock market. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I, I think if I could talk to my younger self, I don't know if I would have listened, but I, I guess I didn't really run the numbers 
with if you put a hundred dollars a month in an investment like an index fund when I was 20 that money just keeps growing and growing and growing and it doesn't seem like a lot you know I would tell somebody don't wait until you're 40 to start putting money in the stock market because the earlier you put a little bit in it'll help you a ton so yeah exactly and I think that's probably the example that gets most people interested in investing starting young as when you start to understand what compound interest is. And I think it's fun sometimes to hop on a compound interest calculator online and just do some basic math. Um, Dave Ramsey is also a popular financial guru personality. The example he usually gives, and I'm going to be a little bit off on the numbers, so I apologize, but he uses the example of a kid who's in his 20s, I think like we'll say like 21, who for you know three or four years puts in uh, like three or four thousand dollars into a Roth IRA, which is an investment account, uh, and invests it into an index fund, then never touches it again. And then his brother, who's like 30, 31, who starts investing when, by the time he's 30, he will never catch up to that his younger brother, even though his younger brother never invested again, his money will just keep compounding. And even though his older brother's investing the same amount of money year after year for like 20, 30 years, he'll never catch up to that 20-year-old kid who invested you know, $15,000 when he was that young. So I think whenever you think of it that way, it makes it a lot more um, educational and a lot more motivational because you think, oh, if I don't do this now, then I'm going to be in big trouble later on. And if I just do a little bit now, it's going to pay off huge in the, uh, in the long run. Yeah. In this whole thing, I feel like just having a little bit of education on what what investing in the stock market really is and you know what it can give you, just a, that little bit of education can help people a ton. So good job recommending this book. <laughs> yeah, and again, I always get into the weeds of things too much. So if I stressed out anyone listening, I apologize. But I encourage you to read the book because it, you know, it breaks it down and only teaches principles. It won't stress you out, I promise. Yeah. So I highly recommend it. All right. Which kind of a little bit in the weeds here, but the last chapter of this book, at first it kind of baffled me because we just read all about don't choose individual stocks. And then we have a whole chapter about how to choose individual stocks. And... um it was funny because I'm like, what in the world? And Clay had me listen to an episode of a Bogleheads podcast. So I don't know if you ever listened to that, Mitch, but for people that don't know, John Bogle, basically he began the whole idea of mutual funds and is the founder of Vanguard, which is a company that prides itself on low fees for people trying to invest their own money. So on this podcast episode, and I can link it in the show notes, the guy was interviewing the author of a newly released book on index funds, and he started talking about decorating your core, and I thought this was a hilarious way to describe it. So your core is your main investment core of index funds. And some people, once they have their basic, you know, most of their money in these index funds, like to decorate their core with a little bit of individual stocks, like a smattering of individual stocks here and there. And like this author says, maybe it's a company you really, really like, or a company that interests you, or you think might take off. And most of the time, these probably won't pan out, but they're kind of 
for lack of a better word, fun to do. And I teased Clay after we listened to this together that he likes to decorate our core. He chuckled about it, but he did say that that podcast was a good reminder to him not to go overboard with individual stock picking because it really doesn't usually pay off. And you have to be checking more because you have to be savvy about when to sell which you don't really have to worry about with the index funds. So what is your stance on decorating your core? Yeah. Well, first, when I heard this, I thought it was talking about working out, like getting a six pack or something. <laughs> which is also a and great idea. Like, why is the... <laughs> yeah, I was like, why is this on a financial podcast? <laughs> but I think um, for most people, you don't need to decorate your core with individual stocks. You can just not worry about this. But I actually do find it kind of exciting and you're right. You really have to temper yourself. Like you cannot go overboard. You have to be super disciplined. Otherwise, I don't think you should do it at all. But I think if you're using a little bit of your money to pick individual stocks, I think that's totally reasonable, especially if it's a hobby and it's kind of fun for you. But I think if it ever gets stressful or if you're ever using more of your money than you should, which most people say like 5% of your portfolio, you could put towards this kind of fun decoration of your core. But if you're using a little bit more than that, I'd probably say to be a little bit more cautious and maybe temper that just a little bit because you're going to be in hot water pretty soon if you don't. And I have a friend who did this. He invested pretty much all of his money into like Bitcoin type stuff like Ethereum, which initially was taking off. But then since he bought it, it all kind of went downhill really fast. And so he lost a ton of money. And <laughs> it was a good reminder to me because I thought I was missing out on all that stuff. But it's a good reminder that, you know, if everyone's doing it and it seems really exciting, uh, still don't pursue it. Don't put all your money into it. Like this book teaches, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So that's my official stance. So I do it myself so I can't tell someone not to, but just be really careful. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I, um, yeah, sometimes I don't know if it's this decorating your core idea that does it, but sometimes Clay, I find him like getting a little obsessive about money and investments and, I have to tell remind him to take a step back and just relax because our core and our plan, our financial plan for the future, we are executing just fine and everything is going in the right direction. But sometimes he gets like anxious about things, which I feel like this book is trying to put your mind at ease, like relax, put it in the index fund, leave it alone, check in every now and then to see if it's balanced. Do you ever find yourself getting a little obsessed or anxious about money and investments and, you know, needing to take a step back a little bit? Yeah, I do. I go through kind of waves where I'll get really obsessed for a while and I'll start to see it take over my thinking and take over my life. And that Boeing stock is just one example. You know, I was like so into it. Uh, and it was all for like 20 bucks. So <laughs> I think just... Uh, <laughs> Whenever I get in those modes, then I take a step back and I take a page out of this book. That that's one of the main points of the book is like, don't let it take over your life. Don't get stressed out about this stuff. Just invest for the future. Let your plan run its course. It's going to work out just fine. And when I start to do that a little bit and step back, then things go a lot better. Um, but if I find myself on my stock market app, you know, every you know five minutes, every hour, then I know I need to take a few steps back, and maybe I don't <laughs> check in on it every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. That sounds like you and Clay. I like when you talk investing because you can <laughs> commiserate with each other about this, even though we all yeah. know that the stock market always goes up, so everything is going to be fine. 
Yeah. All right. Do you think there's anything else that people should know about investing, you know, for the beginner? You don't have to go into everything, but that we haven't covered. Anything I didn't ask you about that you want to talk about? Yeah, I would just encourage people to um, read this book just to get your appetite a little bit. Um, or how do I say this? I would encourage people to read the book just to, you know, whet their appetite, so to speak. And then I'd encourage them just to look at their finances holistically. So you mentioned debt and things like that. I actually think looking at your debt is maybe a better place to start with your finances uh, and then start worrying about investing after that. And uh, again, I'm not paid by Dave Ramsey, but he actually has some good baby steps to follow if you're in financial troubles. That includes getting out of debt, getting an emergency fund in place, and then you can start worrying about investing. But as far as investing, I would just say, you know, put it in an index fund and then set it and forget it and things are going to be totally fine. And if nothing else, if you're in your 20s, just open up a Roth IRA, put $500 a month in it for the rest of your life. And at least if you only do that, you'll have over a million dollars for retirement, which is more than most people actually have. <laughs> yeah. So I think you'll be just fine. Sad but true, right? Yeah. Well, good. Okay. Besides this book, and you've mentioned a couple other things, anywhere else that you like to find information about investing that people might want to check out? Yeah. I think the main form I've used is the White Coat Investor blog. It's mostly geared towards people who earn a ton of debt from student loans, but then are going to be in the six-figure income later on. So if that's your scenario or your situation, I would definitely recommend that one. There's some other pretty good books you could read too. There's one called The Millionaire Next Door, and it gives a good perspective on someone who uh, maybe doesn't believe in investing and doesn't think that they can ever become a millionaire because it shows that you know over time, if you do basic financial choices, like investing a little bit into retirement and a little bit of budgeting, then you'll become a millionaire. So I think that's a really good one too. Another investing book is the only investing book you'll ever read is a really good one too. It's a little bit longer and kind of has a lot of, uh, you know, really intense details. So you don't have to do that one <laughs> if that kind of stresses you out. But those are probably the resources I'd go to first. Nice. Those sound good. Um, have you ever looked at the J.L. Collins blog, The Simple Path to Wealth? If you haven't, you can check it out. That's probably Clay's favorite right now. He had me read a series of posts about stocks recently, and my main takeaways were really similar to this book. Number one, the stock market always goes up, and his second one, which made me remember it really well, was Toughen Up Cupcake, meaning that you have to sometimes be tough to trust that your money in the stock is going to go back up <laughs> if there's a crash or something like that. So don't pull it out at a low point in a moment of panic. So check that out if you haven't. And I, I will get those names from you and link all of those in the show notes. So this was so fun, Mitch. Hopefully somebody out there who wants to, as the book says, build wealth, ignore Wall Street, and get on with their lives um, got something out of this. And thanks so much for recommending this book to be, to me and chatting about it with me. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I love the podcast and I hope I got some good content for you. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure everyone's going to love it. I hope you enjoyed this episode and find me at goodreads.com as cleanish reads or on Instagram at cleanish reads to leave comments or book suggestions. And let me know if you learned anything from this book or have any more questions that I can ask Mitch.
And since this is the last episode of April, I'm excited to announce our book club book for May. May is all about fantasy, and our book of the month is Senlin Ascends by Josiah Bancroft. Here is the book blurb from Amazon. Thomas Senlin, the mild-mannered headmaster of a small village school, is drawn to the tower by scientific curiosity and grandiose promises of a guidebook. The luxurious baths of the tower seem an ideal destination for a honeymoon, but soon after arriving, Senlin loses Maria in the crowd. Senlin's search for Maria carries him through madhouses, ballrooms, and burlesque theaters. He must survive betrayal, assassination, and the long guns of a flying fortress. But if he hopes to find his wife, he will have to do more than just survive. This quiet man of letters must become a man of action. I have to say that this setting at the Tower of Babel is very intriguing to me. So get your copy and tune in next month when I discuss this book with one of my favorite people. And until next time, very happy reading.